Hi, welcome to Literaturely, a podcast about teaching literature. I'm Margaret Malt. And I'm Paige Wallace. And today, I was about to say we're tackling Shakespeare, but we're not tackling him. This is not, like, it's not a in-depth expertise look in Shakespeare. It's really that sort of professional amateur approach, I think. We're tossing him around today. <laughs> Yeah, tossing Shakespeare. We're, we are tossing him into the mix. Um, we we were talking about this before. Um, neither of us are Shakespeare scholars. No desire to be a Shakespeare Under no scholar. No. Mm-hmm. Um, not hating on any Shakespeare scholar. Follow your dreams. Follow your passion. Just not ours. <laughs> um, but you can't be connected to an English major in any way, shape, or form without Shakespeare coming up. Yeah. And so then I guess like our part of our goal for this episode is to talk to other non-Shakespeare experts um, who are, you know, tasked with teaching Shakespeare. And for ourselves, we were thinking, you know, how would we teach that in a world where we, we would need to, right? Um, neither of us need to right now, but a lot of people teach Shakespeare uh, in high school. And so thinking just like career trajectories, if you're ever going to teach high school, um, you kind of maybe want to start or like have some sort of ideas about how you would approach Shakespeare. Yeah, or intro to English studies, intro to drama, um, intro to English literature for, uh, until 1850. It pops up even like just responding to Shakespeare, knowing the references. Um, and I'd also like to solicit all of you Shakespeare scholars out there, please send us your answers, your resources, your advice, your stories, all of it. You can Tweet at us at literaturely101. Go to our Instagram, send us emails. Very Kim Possible over here. Call us, beep us if you want to reach us. And yeah, I don't know. Where do you want to start, Paige? That's a great question. Maybe we should start with our course objectives. Yeah, that sounds good to me. Okay, so what would some of your objectives be for teaching Shakespeare? I think my kind of top shelf objective would be uh, to start a conversation about uh, the canon. Um, this is something that we've talked about before. And so how do you approach Shakespeare and the canon and examine this text in a sort of significant way or, or thinking about the significance of how the themes and ideas in these texts are can be connected and relevant to today. No, I agree with what you're saying with that actually, because I was thinking most likely I would be teaching Shakespeare, not in a Shakespeare focused course, but part of a broader survey course. And I would be primarily interested in the cultural legacy Shakespeare is responding to, and then how they get further embedded, reimagined, challenged and was even thinking about linguistically how like Shakespeare you know we always talk about how he created so many words like eyeball and whatever 
And it might be interesting to take a linguistic approach to Shakespeare. Well, I really like that. Yeah. And the reason I was thinking was that he did not invent the word slut, but it pops up and thinking about how you can use these sort of loaded terms that appear in Shakespeare and um, have your students think through that. Because I know as a student, slut always felt like a very modern word to me and a modern connotation. And what happens when you look at a 16th century text calling women sluts? Yeah, absolutely. I really like that, that approach. And now I'm thinking about how like different that would be. Like, cause again, um, students are usually like, if they're in a class that's covering Shakespeare in college, it's maybe not their first experience with Shakespeare because it's usually part of some sort of like high school standard curriculum, right? Um, and so again, we've talked about students come in with like their own ideas about how difficult a text is gonna be, how interesting it's going to be, um, stuff like that. And so I think that linguistic approach would be a really sort of, interesting way to unpack Shakespeare, to do a research project with some of his text that um, uses the text, like centers the text, but also gives students enough freedom to move outside of just the text, right? And, and sort of thinking about relevance beyond like just what's here on this page, just what I'm reading in my No Fear Shakespeare. Right? <laughs> and so I think that could be really, really cool. My brain's going all sorts of different directions, but you can even allow students to investigate how certain language had different connotations at that time, um, what, what words were political that aren't political today and vice versa. Mm. That And how does a text immediate context inform it but then rereading it today gives us a different reading of it and how how does that change a text value and significance like what does it mean to do a feminist reading of Shakespeare or post-colonial reading of Shakespeare which are not readings he intended like I think you can do a lot of play with that um yeah of that then and now um, in terms of technique, language, themes, which could be really fruitful. Absolutely. And so I think this is a good point to plug a resource that I found researching this um, was the, the, um, the Folger teaching um, kind of library where they're, they have like a series of lessons and assignments that you can use when you're teaching Shakespeare. And I was just going through this and I was like, these are so cool. Um, and I, and, you know, I'm like, I'm not doing Shakespeare, but <laughs> looking through these uh, assignments and stuff, I was like, this makes me kind of want to do it. Um, and one of them was, that I really liked was this sort of lesson titled More Than Words, How to Speeches Incite Collective Action. And it pairs um, three different speech speeches together that incite groups to take bold, sometimes violent action. And so it's using um, Donald Trump's January 6th address, uh, the funeral speech from Julius Caesar, and then um, a speech from Henry V, right? And kind of doing some compare contrast work with those to better understand like 
the power of language. And mm-hmm. so I think that ties into to sort of this kind of textual investigation of like the meanings of words and the power behind them and 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 bringing it to like a really sort of contemporary controversial kind of moment in time um, that makes Shakespeare because that, that's the thing that I kind of think about a lot is that Shakespeare is painful for students because they feel like it's not relevant anymore right that's and what so, I was thinking that like he gets labeled as a dead white man but the emphasis is on dead rather than yeah anything else yeah and so it's like he you know we know he's that, that these texts are still relevant um and yeah and so how do we what's a way to share Shakespeare with students so that they understand that relevance so they can see like yeah this is really old but I'm learning something from it you mean other than putting Shakespeare to rap and rapping to your students to (laughs) like every movie in the 2000s about English teachers had us believe wait 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 what Oh, I think it's Freedom Writers. They have Hilary Swank's character like rap Shakespeare to show that he's. Oh, I've never seen power. this movie. Can I tell you I that? I have not either. But I my students write about it, and I'm like, wow, this feels so white savory ish. I can't watch this. <laughs> oh. There's multiple um, examples, though, of white English teachers rapping Shakespeare to their diverse classrooms to show that he's hip and relevant. And like, the students are always like, in, in these films like whoa he can speak to us and it's like oh no <laughs> I don't know if that's it um no I like your this approach you're talking about much better because it's not pandering either right like you don't need to pander to your students or dumb down Shakespeare for them not that putting it to hip-hop is dumbing it down but um your students I think you can get creative to keep it fresh, but also recognize that your students can rise to the occasion and there's important skills to be learned from approaching Shakespeare. Yeah, I don't know a lot of details because um, this was just something in passing conversation, but I do remember a professor, it was, it was Dr. Alicia Gaines, talked about using empire, um, mm-hmm which is, you know, like, uh, it was a Fox series mm-hmm. and we've got like those family sort of dynamics and it's got some like nods to Shakespeare in it, right? Different, like the, the mad dad and, and various other things. Um, and using that like empire as like a lens for studying Shakespeare. And again, like I, this was just in passing conversation. So I have no details, but I think <laughs> it's another example of like, here we are using something that um is it's like pop culture it's relevant to students at the time like it was popular on television um and can can it work as a lens to to say like you know understanding Shakespeare is also better understanding this text right this tv show um and unpacking it and you know students are can can be really wowed by that sometimes like oh that's interesting I didn't know that kind of thing yeah and, and in that same vein this might be a little pandering of me but like preparing for this um episode 
I just got really excited about the idea of doing film adaptations with Shakespeare and not because it's like more fun, even though it is, is really fun to me, but more to consider how themes evolve and adapt um, and also to really ground the idea that Shakespeare today is maybe considered high culture, maybe slightly out of touch or, or high art, but he, he was pop culture. He was for the masses. And so how do, how do we recontextualize him to understand him as pop culture? And I was thinking teen films is a fun way to see, to look at that um, and really ground, ground that idea to consider how do we talk about these ideas as a, as a wider culture, mm -hmm. not as just students in a classroom analyzing an obscure text, unpacking these vague symbolism moments or whatever, but really like, how do you use art to mass communicate to a large group um, effectively? Yeah, so I'm thinking about Shakespeare um, and the study of Shakespeare paired up with the history of the book, text technologies. I'm sure this has been done, right? Um, but thinking again, like tracking a text um, and it's all of its different versions over time um, and seeing, you know, movement from like sort of mass consumption to a niche field to that still has like these connections to popular culture. Um, and so taking something like Taming of the Shrew and understanding, you know, what texts are connected to it mm -hmm. um, from that particular time and context uh, and what are the, all the iterations of those texts? So I'm thinking like projects that include like, you know, huge webs of connections from one text to it to the next and thinking, you know, did Taming of the Shrew, what did, what did that text, what kind of influences did it have and what kind of views or questions about women, women's authority over their bodies, over their lives, do we get from that, from those different iterations, right? And, and how do they play out? And I think that stuff like that would be so interesting and fun. And now I'm like, I, I could, I kind of want to do Shakespeare now. <laughs> um, I remember reading like the children's version of Shakespeare as a kid and getting to Taming the Shrew. And at the end of that chapter, being like, what? What? Because <laughs> everything else you can kind of reconcile in your head of like, oh, that's romantic. But I remember just hitting the table of this room and being like, what is my takeaway here? <laughs> like, I don't like this. But, but also like the number of young adult texts that play off Taming of the Shrew, play off Romeo and Juliet. Um, like, can you imagine like the, the endless sort of hole you could dig yourself into yeah. that? Um, no, it would be great because I know I'd be really interested to do Taming of the Shrew with the obvious 10 things I hate about you. Less to say, look how similar they are, but more if you're comfortable with 10 things I hate about you, which I am, like, why? What's different about this that makes me more comfortable? 
And I'd be interested to see if my students are as comfortable with the movie as I am, or if there's a generational difference that they are no longer comfortable with it. And if so, why not? Like what's changing? What's, what are the texts doing differently? Like not what is similar about them, but what is different? And do these, how do these differences affect our interpretations, our, the techniques being used, all of that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing when you were talking about text and technologies, it was making me think about another book I read as a kid. Did you, have you heard of it? It's called um, The Shakespeare Thief. Say it again. Uh, it's called The Shakespeare Thief. No. It is, I believe, a YA novel um, that, okay. It's I called The just, Shakespeare Stealer? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, and it's about this boy who knows shorthand and his, he like is an orphan who works for this guy. I forget if the guy runs a publish, like uh, a printing press or if he runs his own theater, but he wants hit the, the boy to infiltrate Shakespeare's company to transcribe the plays as they're happening so they can print it because there was a gap in performances to printing because if Shakespeare printed the play, then anyone could perform it. Um, and they wanted their company to be the only one who could perform it. But if you delay too long and someone else writes it down, they would get the copyright or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. And I think that would be really interesting to track because a lot of Shakespeare's plays, you know, there's not a concrete date of, oh, this is when yeah. it's written. It's like, it's written sometime here. We're not quite sure. Right. And I think that could be a really productive way for students to think about those changing forms and like to do that sort of investigation. Um, like what, what's, what are the clues we're using to say, okay, this is, was written during this time. Um, and it would be really, I think it would be a really fun project to teach students. Like how do you read a text for cultural clues? You could maybe depending on resources, talk about the way we look at documents, um, how we look at other contemporary texts to see what they're referencing and responding to, like who notes that they've seen this. Um, and all of that, which I don't think I'd want to do a whole semester on, but would want to do a unit on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's the thing I keep thinking about a lot of units that could work for Shakespeare and, and also just thinking about like intellectual property, mm -hmm. um, copyright laws, plagiarism, um, collaboration. I, um, and, you know, we've talked about like sort of rejecting that like genius author sort of the idea of the genius author and understanding, you know, the history of text and manuscript production and whatnot can, as, you know, collaborative um, with a, a lot of different like hands in the pot kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, I think could be again, another interesting way to, to talk about yeah. um, collaboration and remix and um, in the intellectual property and the sort of, you know, the ways that certain copyright laws fail us, like fail to understand authorship as dynamic. Yeah, and that, 
I like what you were saying about like, it doesn't exist in a vacuum and really driving home, like how writing is always in collaboration, even if it's with an editor or with an audience and that like, you're part of these, like writing is a community effort. I really like that. Um, I'm trying to remember which play I read. It was for a um, restoration drama class. No, no, maybe English, not restoration, sorry, uh, Jacobean uh, Renaissance class. And we read a play by a different author, but they believed that Shakespeare had contributed to it. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I would like to almost have like one play where the primary author is non-Shakespeare, but we think Shakespeare contribute, contributed to it. And then the vice versa, the Shakespeare play. Yeah, um, yeah. You, could, you could also like, go back to that very precise study of like the words mm-hmm. like the linguistic study um to think about and I'm, this might work and it might not but you know how do we like are there certain like words or phrases or something that we know were more um likely to be used by Shakespeare versus this author and like is there a way to trace it like that um, and I don't know if that would work or not, but. No, well, but you bring up that because Shakespeare is public domain, you can do so much fun stuff with Shakespeare and digital humanities in your classes mm-hmm. of like yeah. having your students upload, you know, soliloquies or sonnets and playing around with like, I don't know if I want to say coding, but that like, even just like control F and say like, this play uses this word this many times, this play uses like the word and track like the use of a certain word throughout and figure out like, well, what's the significance? So what, like, how do we use technology to rethink Shakespeare or or dive in deeper? Um, You could even do those annotations I've talked about before, Mm -hmm. but I think it'd be really interesting to like, play like you they could actually create some sort of digital project using Shakespeare without worrying about someone setting a copyright strike yeah and I think I would I think this is a class like if I taught Shakespeare in any capacity would be really heavy on like digital projects Mm -hmm. because you're right I, I think there's so much potential there oh if you did like a Shakespeare adaptation class too you could have your students you know create their own adaptation at the end and where they justify their adaptation. Like what are they responding to in Shakespeare specifically? Why did they choose the play they're choosing to adapt? What are they changing and why? Who's their audience? And how does that connect to maybe Shakespeare's original audience or how does it disconnect? Yeah, I think that. do it something like micro adaption, like so that they're not adapting a whole text. Yeah because then you just get them sort of doing an iteration of the exact, you know, like, but just, mm-hmm. I don't know, like sometimes it's cool, but sometimes it's just like them in their dorm being like, you know, kind of yeah. the exact play and there's not- Too much of a one for play. one. Yeah, but if like, how do you take a, a important speech, an important monologue, something and adapt just that part? You made me think that obviously my brain went to, to be or not to be. And then that made me think about how students would probably adapt that in line of thinking very specifically about mental health. Oh yeah. You could do a whole thing of Shakespeare and mental health. Absolutely. That oh, would be yes. 
fun, not fun, but <laughs> I keep saying fun because I think that is my approach to everything we're talking about today. Let's just like, let's have fun with this. <laughs> um, but I was also thinking you could do different um, female archetypes and look at variations of them throughout Shakespeare's uh, plays and think about how we continue to adapt these archetypes throughout well, work. If, I, um, if, if you do that, you have to use Grey's Anatomy. Oh, who are you thinking of? I don't know. Or just the different female archetypes they have yeah. on Grey's. Yeah. Yeah. You know what, actually? So this is why I was thinking about this specifically. I'm going to go all in. So when I was in grad school in my um, medieval class, we read Chaucer's uh, Trollus and Crusade, which mm -hmm. then Shakespeare adapts into his play, Troilus and Cressida. Okay. And I was thinking about this because I just finished Madeline Miller's song of Achilles. Okay. So I'm very um, Iliad right now. And Cressida is this like, because of Shakespeare is associated with the fickle woman, the disloyal woman, um, the faithless woman, all of that. But he's actually sort of sympathetic to her in his play. And she's this like walking contradiction where she seems and she seems very aware of her position, which she also, in um, Chaucer's poem, she seems very aware of this impossible position she's in, where she's expected to be loyal to Troilus, who she loves, but she's being sent to the Greeks as a, a an exchange for a prisoner of war, that she's going to be their slave. And that's incredibly physically dangerous for her. She has to navigate that. Right. And um, walk this line that she can't. And then, of course, she's punished for it. Um, and I forget if it's Shakespeare or Chaucer's version that one of her last lines is this self-aware, like, no one will ever say, there, there will never be a sympathetic song written about me. I'm going to be cursed for the rest of time. Um, and for Shakespeare's, there's like a lot more critical attention coming to Cressida. Um, I think since like the 1980s, mm -hmm. that sort of feminist scholar push. Um, and I just think it would be really interesting to look at that sort of figure, the woman who is judged by sexist society standards and knows it. Yes. And that can be very Meredith Grey of, uh, you don't get to call me a whore <laughs> that, that yes. speaks to Derek that, and, and that she's judged by standards, but, and knows it. And the audience who does typically participate in those sexist judgments is able to be sympathetic to her, but only briefly and not in a way that really changes society's views. Um, but I think looking at sort of these women who follow the archetypes, but also speak out against it. Yes. I think um, Ophelia would also fall into that. I think Shakespeare has a lot of women who fall into that trope, like where he's using the trope, but also knows on some level it's unfair. <laughs> do you want to give him that much credit? I don't, I, maybe I do. Okay. I, I, and I'm not basing this on anything really. Cause again, not a Shakespeare scholar, but I just feel um, maybe, maybe there's a little bit more play. If, and if anything, 
I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt actually because he's writing under Queen Elizabeth for the be- like beginning of his okay. career. You know, okay. that's fair. Woman in charge, gotta can't come out too strongly against them, but also can't overly support them because Queen Elizabeth is still kind of like, don't worry, guys, I'm not like other women. <laughs> don't have to worry about me. I think that would be a really fun. I need to stop saying fun, but um, no, say fun. Like I think you can. You should say fun because, like, that's the selling point for our students, right? Like yeah. because again, like I don't want to overgeneralize them, but I don't think any of them are gonna like usually come in excited or thinking about like Shakespeare as fun, right? Not like they would like if it's a film class or something like that. And so I think that you're you're kind of like you're onto something with, with saying like, this should be fun, right? This can be so fun. Um, we can be so excited about this. Like, even if it's not our expertise and it's not our students' expertise, but it could still be like really fun and exciting and relevant in all these ways that we've talked about. And like, yeah. yeah and isn't it fun to talk about these archetypes and how they, like, and to debate, like, you know, do we give Shakespeare that much credit or <laughs> not, right? Like, yeah, so stick with fun. It's fine. Yeah. I was thinking, like, to do a women in lit class and pick an archetype that you're going to work through and start with Shakespeare and, and track that. Oh, I love this. Yeah. And, yes. like, you could do something with Cressida um, or, you you know, that's kind of kind of obscure but I kind of think it might be worthwhile to look at something obscure that your students haven't read that play they haven't heard of the play mm-hmm. and then see what sort of legacy it's had that's like no it appears here and here and again here and realize like how pervasive this is without them knowing like kind yeah. of like surprise <laughs> Margaret, I think Margaret like I think you know you've just stepped into like such important territory with like you know if if before we did this podcast and we were planning a women in lit class I would think Shakespeare would not be on my radar at all right absolutely not on my radar for women in lit class because why but what you've just pointed out is this really provocative way of using Shakespeare in that class to push back on the canon and simultaneously like not throw Shakespeare out but trace and critique over time and bring him into a larger conversation where he's not this sort of idolized soul um, part of the class, but part of a larger network conversation that can be really productive when we're thinking about the way we type women um, in real life, in text, you know, over time. Yeah, like I don't think as you were saying, anything exists in a vacuum. So Shakespeare wasn't writing in a vacuum, but you also can't get away from his legacy. So if we see how people write back and change the narrative, adapt the narrative, I think in the long run, it gives us more tools to change narratives that exist today that we aren't happy with. I always think um, Henry Louis Gates, where he talked about the North won the civil war, but the South won the narrative war. Mm-hmm. Like narrative besides the reality we live in. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so, and, and so like understanding that trajectory is, is, is also connected to breaking it, like breaking apart that, that typecasting, right. That stereotype, that version of the suppressive version of a woman. Oh my gosh. I don't know why I just thought of this, but if you did something with Lady Macbeth and the idea of like women who want power and how mm-hmm. that affects today, the way we look at female politicians, but we were watching um, canine intervention in episode okay. one. Dog's name is Lady Macbeth. And it's, <laughs> I was just like, what are we saying about both the dog and Lady Macbeth? Because <laughs> that's a mouthful. Like when you call your dog's name, are you saying lady? Are you saying Beth? <laughs> are you using her full title? Depends. Um, depends on the situation. Is it casual, formal? Is she being introduced at a dinner? Like it just depends. Yeah, when she's introduced at falls, it's the lady Macbeth. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think you it could be really fun. And, and thinking about feminist scholars, I feel like in the 80s who were specifically writing about these characters, you could even use it to look at the trajectory of literary scholarship um, and how that evolves. You could pick a specific character like Ophelia and look at the ways critics have written about her um, over the years. And I think that would help a problem we've talked about before of students asking us, well, what's the right interpretation? What does this mean? What's the right answer for what this means? Mm-hmm. Or what, what what's the takeaway? And showing them how the takeaway evolves, it changes um, and how the interpretation depends as much on the reader as it does the work itself. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So we went in a lot of directions that I was not expecting us going <laughs> with um, with Shakespeare. And I was not expecting to get to the end of this and be like, I would want to learn more about teaching Shakespeare. Um, so I think it'd be fun, especially what we were talking about before. Our students have read Shakespeare before. Um, and so they're all going to come in when you teach, whether you're teaching a Shakespeare course or you're teaching one play, they're going to have expectations. Mm-hmm. And normally, I think when we know our students have certain expectations, we see that as an obstacle. But I think in this scenario, you can really use that to your advantage to subvert their expectations or talk about how their expectations are confirmed, but how we can rethink that. um, Because that's going to be a a chance for your students to see their own evolution on a topic. It's not like just something new to them that you're then filling their brain with the information. They're going to see a position change or a difference in understanding and really have that like look at where you started to see how far you've come moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that you're right that like we, it can be an obstacle at times when a student already has an idea about a text, but it can also like what you're saying, if, if it's posed as a further investigation, Mm -hmm. not just, we're not going to hammer in the exact same version of this text, like teaching this text, right? We might be yeah. using the same text, but we're not going to teach it the exact same way um, that it's been taught to you, you know, twice over. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be hard too, because it, you know, when you're planning a class, 
it's also hard to take risk, right? And do something different um, than, than A, what you've done before, B, what resources are available to you in terms of how to do it. Um, and, you know, just the execution, like we've had all these great ideas, but, you know, all, we don't even know how many of them would actually work the way we want them to when it's time to execute them. Yeah. Um, I just have a quick question as we wrap things up. Mm-hmm. What Shakespeare plays did you read in high school? I read um, Romeo and Juliet. I, that was in middle school. And I remember we had to get a, a, cause a slip signed to let us watch the oh. I don't even know what version it was, but there was like, we, we got to see like naked, butt, like, you know, um, and so I had to have a version, like a slip sign to be able to watch that version. And I remember being like, you know, my like 13 year old self and us reading slash and then watching parts of that play and the entire time just being like, why are they so dumb? Why did they have to die? Like, you know, just like being so frustrated with it um, and not understanding like why anybody my age would want to like die for love, you know? Um, And then in high school, we read Hamlet. um, And I feel like that's not it. It can't be. I... I want to say that maybe we read Taming of the, Sh- of the Shrew, um, but I can't remember. What did you read? We read, um, I think my freshman year, we read Romeo and Juliet. And it's funny you said, like, you kept thinking, how stupid are they? Because my freshman year class, I don't think we read the actual play. I think we read sort of a prose version because we were reading, it was like a world literature class. And, and for that unit, we were looking at types of love. And so we read a different Greek myth that, that is similar to Romeo and Juliet and talked about how Shakespeare was taking in, um, inspiration from this myth and, and blah, blah, blah. But part of the, the main part of the discussion was this is immature love. This is an example of like immature love, irrational love. Um, it's infatuation and, and like all of that. And like that that's why they die and are so stupid because they haven't got, had the chance to go deeper. They only, um, which I appreciated them going over with us at um, freshman year. And then we read in British Lit, we read Hamlet. And then in AP Lit, we read King Lear, which... Okay. I think I mentioned before my teacher at the time said Shakespeare's worst play but best work and that's always stuck with me (laughs) that and he had a oh my gosh I just remembered this he had a box it was called King Lear in a box and it was like the props that you would use if you were to put it on and it had these like jelly fake like uh, squishy eyeballs and I just remember we walked in on our teacher squeezing the eyeball going out vile jelly (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is a line from so you would recreate that for your classes or no I mean I feel like my students wouldn't be surprised if I did but I would I try to avoid prop comedy when doing performances okay that's yeah. fair so I got it no prop comedy <laughs> yeah um I try to avoid being the carrot top of the English classroom mm, okay that's fair 
Yeah, that's actually not true. I bring in props a lot of times, but <laughs> um, so, <laughs> what is your dream course for today? Um, so I'm going to give a cop out. It's end of semester and I'm tired. And, but we've been reading so many, um, short story collections for me. I don't normally read short story collections all that often. And we have read several for book club. Um, and it makes me want to teach a perspectives on short story class again. Uh, I feel like I could, I've done it in the past and I did subpar job and I feel like I could do a really good job with it now. And, and I think it would be like contemporary, um, right? So perspectives on contemporary short stories and I would, my goal would be to, like my objective would be to understand, like to develop an understanding of that genre um, and how it's different from other forms and what are the affordances and sort of constraints of this particular form and I would want to um I don't think I would have students read entire collections maybe I would but I think it would be a pick and choose from several different collections um like I think my theme would just be like in quotations the weird mm. like you know because I feel like that like short stories have because they don't have to carry like um, these sort of like weird worlds for 200 pages. They are able to, again, like this is the genre, right? Leave us like in like this very weird space for a short snapshot of it. We don't need all the answers. Um, and you just finish reading, you know, about the Kevins and you're like, oh, that was weird, wow. I don't, that's, you know, and so I think that would be my theme. Yeah, I like that. I really like the idea of the weird because I think you're right. Short stories can get, we, we indulge that weirdness a little bit more without as much heavy lifting. Um, I think my dream course, I don't, I don't think I've talked about this before, but since we're talking about Shakespeare um, and adaptations would be a global lit course of looking at the ways um, writers around the world have adapted um, classical myths or Greek myths specifically mm -hmm. um, and thinking about it kind of through this colonial post-colonial lens um, where Greek mythology is kind of embedded into our educational structures is like foundational mm -hmm. and and in a way that no other mythology is treated. And I think that's interesting to unpack and then see how cultures around the world respond to this um, positioning. Yeah. Um, so I think there's, um, I have a list somewhere that I keep <laughs> of um, writer's adaptations um, of these myths that I'm interested in. And one day, hopefully I'll be able to teach this class. Yeah, I think like when you mention your list, it makes me think about like, um, uh, that's part of the, like one of the struggles of planning cool like classes is like having these ideas and being able to like keep track of them mm -hmm. for the future, right? Like oh, I'd love to teach this version of this very specific thing at some point, you know, in my future, 
um, there's no, there's no set time. Um, and now I have to keep track of it. So I, I like, I like recording with you, Margaret, cause I can like word vomit everything here and then be like, oh yeah, I did have that very flimsy fledgling idea for something. Also very niche, where it's like, you have to think like, okay, what was that? And how does it fit? I want to teach weird short stories. Why did <laughs> I want to? Oh yeah, that's it. Well, until we get to have our flimsy brainstorming into something bigger idea session next time. Yes. Was that a sentence? Uh, absolutely. You said it <laughs> sentence. Perfect. Bye. <laughs> Bye.